This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back to the Changing Minds series for our third and final episode on the theme of changing minds. Across the episodes, we focus on civil discourse and we ask what it means to engage in dialogue with people with whom we disagree, sometimes deeply. In the first two episodes, I spoke with Daryl Davis about racism and how he envisions the possibility of changing the minds of those who believe and participate in white supremacist and separatist movements. In our third and final episode of the Changing Minds series, I sit down with Bill Ottman. Bill Ottman is the CEO and founder of Minds.com, a new community-owned open-source social media network that prizes privacy, transparency, and open exchange. We explore the advantages and the challenges of unfettered free speech. We talk about the relationship between tech and civil discourse. And Bill talks about his vision of a social media ecosystem that can help pave the way toward creating a healthier, more open, and more vibrant national conversation, not in spite of our differences, but because of them. Hi, Bill. Hey. So, Bill, this is the uh, third of a three-part series that we're doing on the idea of changing minds. The first two episodes were with Daryl Davis, and I've heard both of you in conversation with each other in the past on his podcast, and he hosted de-radicalization group on the Minds platform. How did you two initially connect, and what, what principles do you share that draw you together as interlocutors? Daryl and I initially connected through an event that Minds held in Philadelphia called Ending Racism. And it was all about ending racism through civil dialogue and free speech, which unfortunately is a little bit controversial these days. But so we, Daryl was our keynote speaker and we sold out to like 600 people and had panels on all different topics around digital media and civil discourse. And so, you know, I, I think people are really surprised to hear his experience because it's very counterintuitive. It's like, wait a second, you befriend neo-Nazis and KKK members? Like what? How is that even real? But then it turns out that that is the best way to change people's minds, because which actually isn't surprising because it's all about finding common humanity. You know, it's interesting. I'm a professor and I work on a college campus where the free speech movement has been an ongoing, very vociferous debate. I think one argument offered by those who back free speech unequivocally is that it is the bedrock of a free society, right? And that in a marketplace of ideas where ideas are not censored or promoted by manipulative means, the best ideas will rise to the top. And that reason and logic and clear thinking, all these things that we believe that we're trying to teach on a college campus, those things will discriminate 
discriminate against bad ideas. And I, in general, think that that's true, although I'm a little bit more skeptical than I've been in the past about the tendency of the masses to approach the marketplace of ideas with discernment and reason and logic and clear thinking. I think for obvious reasons, I'm a little bit cynical about it right now. But I've also been really compelled by what I think is a persuasive counterpoint. And that's one made best by the professor John A. Powell, who is over at Berkeley Law. Before becoming an academic, he was a national director of the ACLU, and he has represented, among others, the Ku Klux Klan as defendants in suits that argue their right to free speech. And, and Powell's argued that while no one has ever disputed that the courts have persistently argued in favor of free speech, he's saying, and, and this is more or less quoting him, it's not that I don't understand or care deeply about free speech, but what would it look like if we cared just as deeply about equality? What if we weighed the two as conflicting values instead of a false formalism where the right to free speech is recognized, but the harm caused by free speech is not? For you, does the right to free speech always win in the competition of values when competing values say the right to not be harmed cannot be reconciled? Or are there points where free speech is actually not the top value in the hierarchy? Well, I think that we have rock solid empirical evidence that the First Amendment is a highly effective model for a society when comparing to other models around the world. Ultimately, just coming back to how, how we connected with Daryl, he has had mostly a face-to-face -face strategy, but a partially digital strategy. So he does engage in, in long-form conversation like through email and social media with extreme individuals. And that has proven effective. And so our thinking was, let's partner with Daryl and bring in mind as an advisor to help us bring this to more of a, of a mass audience. Because social media obviously has big problems with regards to radicalization and extremism. But what we know from the research, even out of nature, George Washington University, others, that, that the censorship has serious blowbacks. And, and that the censorship causes dark pools of hate speech to form. It actually generates them. So, so our hypothesis in working with Daryl is, look, over the next 10 years, we're going to A-B test a de-radicalization through free speech strategy in contrast to the censorship strategy of big tech networks. And our hypothesis is that our rate of de-radicalization will be higher than theirs. And that is almost guaranteed because they don't allow the opportunity for transformation to occur because they are banning all the radical individuals. I'm talking about lawful radical individuals. I'm not talking about people who are making threats of violence. Like that's not okay on minds. So, you know, even from just a, a practical perspective, I mean, if you, if you censor somebody, you are then guaranteeing that they will go somewhere else. You know, lawful is an interesting term because uh, the laws about what you can and cannot say under even the context of free speech vary from, from country to country. I'm thinking in particular of uh, Germany, which is a country that is every bit as liberal and progressive as the United States and that has very strong free speech commitments. But they do put very severe limits on free speech in one particular area, which is Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism for, I think, obvious reasons. So they have, for 
example, they've criminalized Holocaust denial and the sale of Mein Kampf. Their principle is seemingly what, what I would understand as a historically derived and proven understanding that in the marketplace of free ideas, sometimes the bad ideas win right, and become bestsellers and that maybe it's best to take them off the shelves or maybe that t- at times that's the only ethical thing to do. Now, of course, the United States doesn't have the history of the Holocaust, but we certainly do have legacies of anti-Semitism imported or homegrown and plenty of racism. In fact, there's evidence, I think, that deplatforming does work. Platform banning can reduce the growth, for example, of new users over time. There's less content produced overall, and they especially work when they're done. And this is, I think, a cornerstone of what uh, your principles are um, if they're done transparently and democratically. So I'm hearing you say that your belief is that banning uh, people doesn't work, that you have empirical evidence that deplatforming does not work, that in the marketplace of free ideas, at least on your platform, that the good ideas do tend to uh, win out. Um, but I do worry that leaving false, damaging, or racist speech free to circulate in the marketplace does something more damaging, persuades those who have uh, do not have yet these beliefs uh, that they are credible opinions since they appear alongside legitimate thoughts. So what do you think about deplatforming? So I think that the the fascinating idea is that deplatforming does work in isolated systems. So if you're on Facebook and you ban every use of X word and ban all those users, you will on Facebook cause you know, a change in what people see and experience. And you're you're changing the acceptable window of media. And that in that isolated system will have an effect. But there's almost no research that I have found that shows on a holistic level of the internet that censorship improves the or decreases global radicalization. What, what it does is it pushes it somewhere else and it actually reinforces the victimhood of those censored groups, in many cases causing violence. There's one study out of Telecom Paris and University of Greenwich called Net Censorship in Times of Political Unrest Results in More Violent Uprisings. There's dozens of studies showing this. So I think that it's a little bit incorrect to say that it works. It works in isolated systems, and there's almost no evidence that it works on a holistic level. Do you think that there's a difference between deplatforming in the context of technology and deplatforming, for example, in other contexts? I'm thinking here of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who this week publicly made uh, what I would consider an absurd charge, apparently gleaned from QAnon, that the 2018 wildfires have decimated California, um, which is where I live, and that those fires were ignited by a space laser controlled by a corporate cabal, including the Rothschild banking firm, as a scholar committed to DEI with a background in the history of racism and anti-Semitism. I noticed that this is the latest in a long line of conspiracies about the Rothschild family and that these conspiracies are always at root anti-Semitic. Now, right now in Congress, there's a call to what I would say is essentially de-platform Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene by taking her off committees. Do you think that there's a specific category of deplatforming that happens in tech that's different from deplatforming, for example, Mein Kampf or Marjorie Taylor Greene? Yeah, so let's be clear. I don't think that 
there should be no consequences for saying misinformation, you know, whether deliberately or non-deliberately. I mean, people have to deal with the consequences of their actions. And I'm also not out here saying that Twitter or Facebook or YouTube have some sort of legal obligation to allow all speech. I mean, that's what Section 230 specifically allows is for platforms to moderate in good faith according to their terms. Now, there is an argument going around that once platforms reach a certain scale, that they should be more neutral and more aligned with the First Amendment because it they have essentially become the public commons. The slippery slope that emerges when you start talking about misinformation is that people are sometimes wrong. And and then getting into their intention is a very case-by-case contextual type of process. So if someone who is literally just, maybe they, they read something that was wrong, I don't know, whatever statement they make, you know, coffee causes cancer. Say, say somebody posted that. Uh, under a certain restrictive policy around misinformation, you know, someone who says that would get banned from a, a global platform that I don't I don't think that that actually makes sense. So in terms of people, you know, in public office, I, I think that on a case by case basis, look, people have to deal with the consequences of what they say, just because, you know, you may have the legal right to say something, but that doesn't mean that they're aren't going to be consequences. I think that we need very granular filtering tools so that people are able to only see the type of content that they want to see and that we have mechanisms to identify misinformation and provide citations and contextual layers around different posts on social media so that the user sifting through their newsfeed can, when they see a post that you know may or may not be misinformation, they can look at a citation layer around that post to educate themselves. And so the the networks, like we're currently building tool a, a tool for this to you know help crowdsource citations and more information around each post. We're not trying to tell people what is and what is not true, but we do want to build sort of decentralized reputation systems so that, you know, some sanity can be brought to the chaos that is social media. But I I think Daryl's work really shows that cutting off the speech, even with drastically misinformed people, is is not the answer. And so we want to build positive intervention tools for whether it's someone on the far left or far right or someone who's racist versus someone who's anti-racist. We want to bring tools to bring those people to potentially have conversations. And that's not always going to go well. Sometimes it will. Sometimes it won't. It's a very long-term process of changing someone's mind. It's not something that happens overnight. So you know, we're we're taking a different approach and, and we're working with groups like Tech uh, Against Terrorism, and a UN group to understand that other models are possible and that we actually do need different environments online with different approaches to this problem. So Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they have their approach, but we have to recognize that when they ban people, they go to dark, darker corners of the internet. And if those darker corners of the internet don't have an academic approach at 
free speech like us, that is more dangerous than them coming to somewhere like mines where we actually have a framework for free speech. It's not just chaos of free speech, you know, that's going to go down a rabbit hole of of violence. It's it's actually we think that the data shows the violence will reduce in this context, but people have to be willing to approach social media in a different way. Like when you see something that's disinformation or hate speech, which to be honest, to be clear, is a very small percentage of the content on minds. I mean, most of the content on minds is like art and, you know, journalism and, and stuff like that. But if you approach and frame your experience that maybe I want to find somebody I disagree with, it, it, it completely changes your perception of, of what it means to consume media and engage with people. Like the world is melting down. People can barely communicate right now. Yeah, these are points on which I definitely agree. And now that we've kind of framed the context for minds in terms of principle of free speech, even in, I think, its most fraught moments, I want to go back and kind of ask you to describe um, minds.com as a platform. So what is minds.com for our listeners who might not have previously encountered it? Yeah. So Minds is a social media app. It feels, from a user experience point of view, similar to to other apps. The the main unique characteristic is that we have this whole monetization mechanism so that you can actually earn money for your content that becomes popular and you can, you know, get tipped and you can also earn cryptocurrency and we have these tokens which you can use to get more exposure on your content. So if you post popular stuff, you earn tokens and then one token is actually equal to a thousand views. So you can boost your posts with your tokens. And we did all of this in reaction to the suppressive algorithms on big tech networks. For instance, on Facebook, you know, 10 years ago, you could actually reach your followers when you posted. Now they've stripped away people's reach. So even if you have 10,000 followers or 100 followers, you're only reaching about 2 or 3% of those people organically. They've changed the way the newsfeed works so that they are deciding what you are seeing in your newsfeed as opposed to you. So we try to protect people's privacy. We, we do, we have similar technology to mainstream social media apps, but principally, whether it's the policy or the privacy or, you know, something like the newsfeed, we do it in an inverse fashion. We all know about the scandals with social media around, you know, any topic from, from privacy to, you know, they certainly have their problems with misinformation too. And arguably their algorithms promote misinformation more than ours because we just have a raw reverse chronological feed. They're prioritizing things based on, you know, your echo chamber and and arguably accelerating radicalization more so in, in that sense. But the funny thing is, if you look at all the apps, you know, you got Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, Facebook, they're all sort of becoming the same app. You've got your chats, you've got your stories, you've got your feed, and, and this is the same on all the competitors. It's fascinating how society is sort of coalescing around this common sense set of functionality that we have sort of agreed is like great functionality. It works for consuming media. And, and so what we're trying to do is basically inverse the foundational principles that the app is built on. So, you know, the, the last uh, component of that being that all of our code is actually fully open source. So anyone can inspect our algorithms Uh, make sure that we're not spying on them. They could actually even take all of our code and make their own app 
with with our code. The final thing I should mention is that we're also community owned. So over 1500 members of our community actually own stock in mines uh, from a very early, early phase. Uh, most private companies, uh, you know, obviously once a company goes public, anyone can. But we opened up uh, for an equity crowdfunding round and we really are just all about rewarding the users and having much more of a people powered community centric ethos. You know, you've talked about, and I've heard you talk about in other interviews, being anti-tech when you started Minds. What got you to be anti-tech? And how did you pivot from being anti to working in the tech sector and then specifically pursuing the Minds platform as, as your project? That was such a valuable experience for me. So basically, for anyone listening, I, you know, when I graduated UVM in, up in Vermont, where I was an English major, I was witnessing the rise of Facebook and I was just appalled by it. I was, you know, granted, you know, up in Vermont, probably a little bit crunchy, you know, eating my granola and, and hiking the long trail. And wearing your mittens. Wearing my mittens and, you know, very much just trying to live the organic lifestyle. This was right as social media was emerging. So everyone's head is suddenly buried in their phone and they're, they're sitting on their computer all day. Because this is a whole other level of the problem with social media, which is just the addictive nature of it. Just technology in general is all-consuming. We're all addicted to, to our phones. And so my first reaction to seeing the, the rise of social media was like, ugh, like I, I don't like what I'm visibly seeing this do to, to my friends. And, and I, I didn't like it. But I didn't know really anything about technology. I, I just had that visceral reaction. But then I started realizing that there's this whole divide in the tech community where there's all closed source sort of surveillance tech, and then there's open source community powered tech. And really technology is, is biology in a way. It, it's sort of once you start studying the internet and networks and you understand that there, you know, the internet is really like at this point, the central nervous system of humanity. It is like this extension of us that we have created. And so, to you know, I, I realized that I was being a little bit stubborn with being so, I mean, tools are tools, you know, since the primitive humans building a wheel to the internet, it's all the same. And so, but, and, but the ethical foundation of that technology is really the key. And so I, I used to do much more, uh, organizing of events and music festivals and but I've always been fascinated with bringing people together and finally sort of saw that in order to hit a critical mass and really create transformation on this planet like you you kind of got to dive into the internet and you know I haven't turned turned back since and I, I think that it seems like we're making progress there's there's a lot of research showing showing that the world is getting better and that the technology is helping facilitate that that being said, there are plenty of dangers and we, we need to keep the dangers of technology in check. Lots to pick up on there, but I have to ask, because I am a professor of English literature, how you understand the relationship between your degree in English literature and the work that you're pursuing now. I, you know, Some themes seem intuitive, wanting to create a platform centered on free speech, wanting to create a platform of a kind of democratic form of uh, openness. Those are principles that I think come out of English literature discipline. But I'm curious how you see it. What's what's your link between your training as a literary scholar and, and your work in tech? Yeah, it was sort of an odd jump. But I learned to th just think critically 
And, you know, language itself is sort of the original technology. <laughs> and the written word, I just read this really fascinating book. Oh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Have you ever have you ever heard of it? I don't know it. I'm gonna have to check it out. So it is by this man named Neil Postman. And it really goes back from, you know, the spoken word, the oral tradition, up through language, up through the written word, up through, you know, the rise of TV. And it's sort of in the in the tradition of Marshall McLuhan, but sort of post McLuhan. And and it's just an amazing journey through the evolution of media and technology. And so, you know, that type of writing and, you know, connecting language with technology, all that type of research got me fascinated by it and started seeing the connections between the two disciplines. And it's a vehicle for language. I always tell my students that the word technology comes from the Greek techne, which means art or craft. And that language itself, as you were saying, is this kind of technology, but that the typical kind of divide that we now have between the arts and the sciences is only relatively recent, right? Descartes was a mathematician and a philosopher. Da Vinci was student of anatomy as well as, well as art. And these divides really come much later. I'm curious when you say language is a technology, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that in the older form of the word techne, technology, or do you mean that in a kind of modern uh, means by which those who have been trained to think about language have some sort of intuition around our contemporary technological ecosystem? I think I first heard the comparison of language as a technology by this futurist, Jason Silva, who who I recommend he's a he's a wild speaker and and writer and videographer who puts out these rants about humanity and kind of the connection between biology and technology and you know evolutionary psychology and I don't know if I have I have too much honestly to for for the rationale there language is a tool that humans have come upon to communicate it was the original tool along with the physical tools, but it was sort of this biological tool to communicate information. And, you know, the internet is sort of in that tradition. It, it, it's, it's, and now with Neuralink and, you know, the internet's going to be in people's brains, probably not my brain. Um, but, you know, th there's this fusion between the internet and and biology, which is which is coming, and it's it's sort of scary, but it also has potential to heal Alzheimer's and other types of disorder. And so there's sort of this gray area of of potential, but also danger, and that's just the nature of tools. Let's go back to the Minds.com platform. On the website, you have a section called Our Principles, and the list includes the following. First, our code and algorithms are free and open source for maximum transparency and accountability. Second, our content policy is based on the First Amendment and governed by a community jury in order to minimize bias and censorship. And third, you can only change someone's mind if you provide them a platform to speak it. We've talked about the free speech element and the censorship element of these principles, but I want to press you on the algorithm rhythm principle. I think this is so important. Why is transparency such an important principle for the platform? This is one of those things that people hear the word algorithm and they kind of run for the hills <laughs> because 
it's not obvious and it's sort of a scary word, but it's so important because what everybody's doing these days is checking their newsfeed. And when you check your newsfeed, there's logic happening under the hood that is showing you what you are seeing. And there are different strategies at presenting this. So our philosophy is that if you subscribe to somebody, then you should see what they post because you made that decision to subscribe to them. And that is your feed, which you should control. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all of them have changed paths. What they now do is call upon some sort of central AI, ML, machine learning system every time your newsfeed refreshes. And it's calling upon a data set that is fueled by surveillance and algorithms that have you know, thousands of variables in them that are based on what you're engaging with. In, in Facebook's case, they're following you around wherever you're going, even outside of Facebook. And they're deciding what to show you next based on their probabilities that you're going to want to engage with it. And, you know, those could be ads. They it, it could be It could be content that you've never seen before. So that to us is just, it's not that algorithms are evil. There could be algorithms that are great. But the problem is that they're not showing us what those are. And we so so we don't know if there's bias, if they're, you know, intentionally fueling polarization and political divide, if they're hiding certain things that, you know, you may have wanted to see. We just don't know. And so I'm all for algorithms that, you know, a user controls, maybe they want to create their own curated feed of, of whatever, and, or maybe they want it sorted by what is, you know, most popular based on X, Y, and Z. And that's, that's all fine. But if we can't see it, we just can't trust it. I mean, they've, they've betrayed our trust so many times. I mean, there was one case a number of years ago where Facebook was exposed to have been experimenting on the users where they, I think they were working with Princeton to see if they could alter their users' moods in the positive and negative direction. And they found that they could, obviously, because, you know, you sort of are what you consume. And so they, they found that they could engineer emotions and then, and they didn't tell anybody about it. And, you know, they apologized, but we know that they're just doing that constantly. And it's not that, even that in itself is inherently evil. It's just that the user should have the ability to consent and understand what they're interacting with. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I think uh, in an interview about this with uh, Zainab Tufeki, um, she said that she doesn't even know, she's not even convinced that Facebook knows where, how their algorithm works at times. But that, that lack of transparency means that there's no sense, uh, either from the users or potential regulators, about the actual data, about how things are actually working. And we can't have any sort of metric or any sort of methodological approach to understanding the dynamic between uh, social media feeds and the broader context for our political moment of civil disagreement here. There's a follow-up question that I want to, to ask you here about the uh, polarizing effects of social media and the effect in particular of that polarization as a result of living in our own bubble on our own personalized feeds. 
How does MINDS address that kind of polarization? This is a very nuanced topic. So what we do now is, so we have this boost system where, as I mentioned, you can earn tokens for posting content and you can boost your posts for more views with your tokens. And the, you know those boosts are distributed to the whole community. And so every like 20 posts in your feed, you'll see a boost. It's all, it's all pure in order based on your subscriptions other than that. And, and you do have the ability to turn those off if you want. But I've always thought of those as sort of a, a filter bubble slash echo chamber breaker because you know they're not ads in like the traditional sense like on on facebook like you know you might see somebody who posted you know they boosted their painting or they boosted their you know maybe a political rant or it could be uh, their their song or 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 whatever you it's it's a whole wide variety of of different types of stuff that that people are boosting so that's one tool we have to break echo chambers now. I, I do think that users should have the right to control their experience. That is pretty foundational to us. Now, the danger of that is that you create your controlled echo chamber and you just build up your own little la-la land. And so we've been designing some new functionality for basically feeding you content on the other side. So if you, you know, opt in and say, hey, look, I'm a progressive and I would like to maybe see some libertarian ideas, then you could opt in to that or the other way around. And I think that that would be incredibly healthy. I mean, I go out of my way to subscribe to people all across the political spectrum all, all across humanity. I, I, I want diversity in my feed. Now, most people don't do that. And it's also, again, like you have to be careful what you wish for. So a lot of people in today's society, you know, say they're a mainstream Republican or Democrat. To get somebody to voluntarily subscribe to a feed of people on the opposite side of the political spectrum, that's a pretty tall order for the country right now, like they would maybe even argue that it's like a terrorist on the other side. The sad part of where we are in discourse today is that standard Republicans think that standard Democrats are like attacking the constitution and the country and like need to go to jail. Like both sides almost think each other needs to go to jail. And that is really scary. Like not even talking about the far left and the far right. So bridging the gap in terms of facilitating respectful dialogue between both sides, this is the kind of thing that we're working with Daryl on. And it's, you know, it's not going to be a, a quick process, but we're trying to find the people on the left and the right who do want to have that conversation and potentially help them pair up, help them connect and you know, that's really the best you can do. I mean, we can't, like, at the end of the day, we as people have to do the hard work in, you know, this is within our families, with our friends. I mean, there's so much division where even families are getting torn apart right now over just basic political disagreements that, you know, we, as a platform, we're trying to do our best to frame an experience and connect people who want to engage in like good faith dialogue even about super controversial topics or with super controversial people. But it's not an easy problem to solve. 
What are some of the ethical choices you found yourself making at Minds.com? Plenty. You know, there's this constant pressure from Silicon Valley to use technology that is not in the interest of the users. So startups have this pressure to grow, 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 grow. And this is what Facebook and Twitter and all of them did is that they grew no matter the cost, no matter the cost to the users, they sold whatever they could, they targeted, they, they spied. And it is easier to grow if you do that, way easier, because you can almost predict what people are going to like. And you know that's the scary part when you're scrolling through your, your feed is you're like, oh my gosh, like, how did they know that I want to click on this? And you do want to click on it. And then you just are feeding the beast. And so we have stood strong, but the difficult ethical questions come in the temptation to use tech that could help us grow faster, but would be, you know, closed source and, you know, potentially compromising users' freedom, which we ha we have not done. And, and if anything, we've gotten better about it and sort of stripping more of, of, of that stuff from our internal project management tools. We're trying to strip that out of our whole company. But then on like the content side, you know, we do ban content. It's, it's, it's not as if we don't. And I, I think that some people kind of get the wrong idea when, you know, they hear, oh, a free speech social network. So that just means anything goes. No, that's not what it means. And there are certainly a line still that we have it's it's granted probably a more liberal line than than most networks but you know we've made difficult decisions with content and on both sides and those edge cases are really where we need to be focusing on the most because take for instance somebody who may be a neo-nazi let's talk about that for a second and say they post something that is like borderline on talking about something violence or making like a, a sick joke about the Holocaust that isn't illegal. You know, it's not imminent incitement. It's not a true threat, but it is, you know, on the edge. From looking at Daryl's philosophy, you know, that's a really difficult situation because that person is actually the person who needs positive intervention the most. That That's someone who's not over the line completely, but they're standing literally balancing on the line. And that's the person that needs the positive intervention. They need to get paired. Like we're, we're also working with a group, Parallel Networks, who is a, a de-radicalization group that has volunteers who, who engage with, with some of these, these radical individuals. And so we want to create chat rooms for those people to talk to each other. And, you know, that bridges into mental health. Generally, we want to, you know, if someone's feeling suicidal on, on the app, we want to be able to pair them up with a resource to, to talk about it because social media is obviously making everybody depressed. And so th those are the tough calls. And I think that the more tools that we have to pair people up who want to talk and have these productive conversations, the more flexibility we're going to be able to have to reach out to those people who are sort of on the edge of going off the edge. Can you give me an example of one of those borderline cases where you made the decision that you were not going to allow a, a user to share a specific piece of content on Minds? So we made a big decision with regards to animated depictions of children. So we made the decision, there's sort of a, a realm of pornographic anime called uh, Lolly, and 
you know, in some cases, these people, again, this is very tiny percentage of content on the site, very niche, but, you know, some of these were sexually depicting kids. And so we looked through the case law and we found that there is not clear case law and that it, it, it does fall under obscen- you know, anti-obscenity laws in certain places, but not everywhere. But we have made the decision as a network that we are not going to allow that type of content because child porn obviously is totally against our policy. It's illegal. But these sort of animated depictions are, you know, it is an edge case, but because it is not okay in certain states, we just made the decision that that type of content will not be allowed. Yeah, it's interesting because this is a ongoing question, I think, for uh, tech platforms around the area of pornographic images in in particular. Uh, I was on a call a couple of weeks ago uh, and I interviewed for this podcast with Julie Albright, who noted that tech platforms across the board censor this particular form of content all the time. So claims that they're not going to censor are are a little bit in that sense um, off the mark from the actuality. And what she cited was that actually... It's not only an ethical question, but a business proposition. She cited in particular the case of MySpace, who she said, you know, really went down under the weight of dick pics and genitalia images, uh, and that that informed Facebook's decision quite significantly um, as a business proposition specifically to eliminate that kind of content from their platform as well. Do you think that this is a business proposition? Is it an ethical proposition? Is it a legal proposition for you? All of the above? Yeah, I mean, pornography is lawful speech in the US. And actually, we had been suspended for a few months from the Google Play Store because of that, even though it was actually behind a blur and it, it was a lawful image. There, There is some pornography that, that is illegal. And that Pornhub actually just went through a, a huge purge because they were facilitating a lot of like not okay content, you know, that gets into the realm of trafficking and whatnot. But we got suspended. And then I appealed to Google that, hey, you do realize that Twitter allows pornography and, you know, you can go and have fun and search for pornography on Twitter. And why are you allowing them to exist in the app store? And Jack Dorsey has said this publicly that pornography is allowed on Twitter, which most people don't realize. And a week later, we got reinstated. So our take is that, yeah, we, we, we do allow it. And we provide really granular tools for making sure that NSFW not safe for work content is, you know, not visible by default. And you have to kind of go through some hoops to, to opt into that. You know, there's all kinds of research showing that you, you know, similarly to radical content around, you know, racism or whatnot, that driving the sex industry underground is not a good idea. And there's plenty of work around sex workers. And, you know, if you look at a lot of what's happening with like OnlyFans, you know, there's sort of like a, a monetization tool that's in the adult industry. And it, it actually helps a lot of people who would otherwise potentially subject themselves to more dangerous forms of sex work. And this is becoming more accepted in a mainstream sense. I mean, even the New York Times has done pieces sort of defending places like OnlyFans to be able to exist because, you know, you don't allow it on a big network, it's going to go underground and it's going to get shadier and less safe. 
I wonder if I could go back to something you said a bit earlier, which is a reference to the entire tech ecosystem in terms of making business decisions based on the larger, as I said, kind of ecosphere of investments and trying to court venture capital and all of those things. What are some of the ethical decisions that you made in that respect? Our original funding round was from the community, and that really allowed us to get on our feet and you know get growth going without compromising anything. I mean, I, I think that venture capital is evolving and there's they're starting to realize that privacy and free speech and decentralization and some of these other like digital rights are actually from a long-term basis more sustainable. You know, a lot of the sacrifices that companies have made in the past to abuse their their users in order to grow. You know, that was very short-term thinking. The internet's not going anywhere and the networks that sustain are going to be the ones that do have the community's trust and the user's trust. And so, you know, make no mistake, people are heavily addicted to big tech right now, but that's only because they have to be because they have the most advanced communication apps and, you know, everybody's there. But over time, as alternatives emerge, and as we are emerging, we're going to catch up to them in terms of functionality. And people do not forget when big tech exploits them. And I think venture capital is starting to realize that. And that's why you know, you'll know you see interesting situations where like Andreessen Horowitz, who actually has a board seat at Facebook, you know, they've launched a whole crypto fund, very focused on privacy, censorship resistance. And so that's a sort of beautiful example of evolution in the VC space where they're understanding that, you know, maybe mistakes were made in the past and that we need to learn and grow. Just to close that up, we like we actually did do a, a venture round from a blockchain focused group and that was great. And it hel- it's, it's helped us grow a lot. We've never had to compromise our principles. And so I think that it's key for startups to be very particular about who they're taking money from and, and making sure that they're not getting forced into a position where they're losing control to a degree that they would have to sacrifice the principles. What challenges have come up for you in developing or scaling or growing minds as, as I see that it's growing quite at significant rate? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the challenges are around what, we, what we've discussed in terms of forcing ourselves not to give in to the pressure to spy for growth. But also, you know, the we, we have experienced uh, problems with a lot of the, the big tech sites in limiting our reach. And I mean, there was an instance on Facebook where for like six months, our links couldn't even get posted into Facebook um, without like a CAPTCHA or in Messenger at all. And there was some warning like, oh, this is like unsafe or... We, we have a couple screenshots of it, but we didn't get any answers. Uh, we did finally reach out to somebody who worked there through a friend of a friend, and we got the restriction removed, and we were told it was like a mistake. But I'm almost positive we somehow got on some sort of a blacklist. And, you know, this is the danger of the lack of transparency is that, and, and there's no clear process to appeal or fix the problem. There's, no, there's, Facebook and Google have very little humanity in their support flow. You know, talking to a human at Facebook or Google is extremely difficult. You can't even do it. I mean, in the case of Google search, we've noticed that some of our blogs, uh, you know, our content posts 
we'll sh- when you search for us on DuckDuckGo, which is a alternative privacy focused search engine, you can find our content just fine. But then when you put when you search for the same content on Google, it's nowhere to be found. So we can only speculate. I don't want to assume the worst. Maybe you know there's something that we could fix, but we've even talked to like SEO search engine optimization groups and they've said, we do not know what is going on. And I, I know people at Google, they specifically don't have any humans to answer any questions about the search engine. And that's because they know that these types of questions are going to come and they're going to have to talk about what the logic of the search algorithms are. And they don't want to talk about that. So you know, growing in this environment and being competitive is extremely difficult and it takes massive viral sensational events to break through the bars. And we've spoken to regulators before who have asked us about our our problems with with Facebook and, and Google, both of whom have antitrust investigations going on right now. And I've just urged them, listen, this isn't the 90s. We're not going to solve the problems just by breaking up the company from a corporate perspective. We need to be thinking about the transparency of the code. If if Google search gets stripped out of Alphabet, it's not going to make any difference. We we need to be able to see what is going on and you know, I just urge everyone to to realize like when you search on Google, you are feeding Google. Like there's there's this whole new group of applications and browsers and you know search engines and and apps. We're not saying ditch big tech completely. You know, we get it. I get it. I still find myself, you know, once in a while I'll Google, but I really do try to to feed the solution and you know search on DuckDuckGo. I use the Brave browser or you know Mozilla and and in these micro actions drive total transformation. I mean, on my, we're just seeing recently what just happened with like Reddit and and all of this the stock market. We're seeing the power of crowds. You know, so for better or worse, you know, I'm not placing any judgment one way or the other about what was happening in the stock market, but we know now that the crowd can change the world. Yeah, I mean, you've just opened up I think a lion's den of questions here because on the one hand we're talking about Google's algorithm and the fact that you suspect that perhaps there are no humans behind it, which is a problem I think if we're looking at this from the perspective and taking for granted the idea that humanistic technology and human intervention into technological processes is a natural and essentially ethical activity. But it, you've also pointed to another question I have which is who has governance over these corporations? Now, antitrust might not be the proper corrective, but the way I see it, the health of our democracy should also not be the purview of private citizens, CEOs, for example, who wake up in the morning and decide policy over these massive entities that the public is hypermediating their access to information through. And the way that I see it, you know, they wake up in the morning sometimes and they decide one way. And based on that decision, there is or is not um, the perpetuation of a genocide in Myanmar or questions about the health or the function of our democracy. And the, and and I, I think that what I'm seeing is that these private citizens who are not vetted by the public, who are creating policies that uh, dominate the public sphere, that are not vetted by public voters, 
members are essentially implementing and deciding on policies in a way that is totally unvetted, um, potentially uninformed by policy experts, and certainly in protection of the company as a primary concern of the decision rather than public safety, for example. Um, Are you worried about these companies having so much, not only market power, but voting power, essentially, over deciding these incredibly important public policies? You know, even as I'm glad of decisions that I think tech has made in the past month or so to, I think, work in favor of our democracy, I worry about how government can or cannot wield its power, even when the decisions of these private entities seem just. Should I not, or should we not be equally, if not more concerned when large corporations wield theirs without any form of governance or oversight? I think we absolutely agree on on more community democratic participation in in the governance of these companies and you know we're we're trying to create a model for maximum transparency and accessibility for for users in the community still within the the free market system and I think that the interesting thing to, thing to me about how how you're framing this is you know I I find it really exciting that the left and the right agree that Facebook and Twitter and you know these big all 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 these companies are sort of doing it wrong. I think I think we agree with that. The right seems to be more pro free speech in the sense of letting the bad ideas get overrun by the good ideas. And the left seems to be more saying Look, you need to vastly limit the spread of you know X, Y, and Z content. And I think that there's there's reasonable arguments on both sides of that conversation. But either way, both sides think that big tech is doing it wrong, and so I tend to think that there is a hybrid model where we can achieve both in a sense without risking the blowback of the censorship because you know while there are very good arguments for you know everything that happened you know at the capitol and i'm sure that there you know were plenty of posts that were over the line calling for violence and you know should be taken down the the reality of it is most likely more content was taken down that isn't over the line and is is very subjective and i think that there are like i was mentioning with the citation tool and the in different warning mechanisms and filtering mechanisms and positive intervention mechanisms where we have to ask ourselves what is actually causing the political and and social divide right now what is causing What's causing the capital riots to happen? What's causing all of the mayhem of, of 2020 to happen in the first place? How are we leading the conversation? How are the big networks? They're not leading the conversation is the problem. I think that the left would be much more open to allowing more content to exist that is potentially dangerous if the networks were stepping up and really making sure from a high level that there was honest conversation happening between all the politicians. I mean, like we just don't have any sanity with or leadership with regards to facilitating dialogue. And this is why Daryl is such a genius 
because you know, if I were Facebook or or Twitter, it's like they should be bringing on someone like Daryl and having a live stream pinned on the top of the explore feed where Daryl is bringing like AOC and Ted Cruz into a sit down to deal with this and get through the conversation. We realize, you know, you both hate each other, but we have to have the conversation. And so, and, and whether it's, you know, a Republican, a Democrat or a neo-Nazi and a Jewish person or whatever the dialectic is, forcing that level of humanity to the surface and then, and because that changes the way that users think about their experience online and it changes the way that people behave online. So if people see the high degree of leadership coming from big tech, in facilitating these these difficult conversations and they see celebrities and politicians finding common ground with each with people who are extreme on both sides that is going to change the way all the users behave and you know it's not going to be a perfect solution but it will have intense impact on the level of discourse that is happening because you know, ideas do spread. And, and, you know, Daryl, Daryl's Ted talk uh, doesn't have, you know, 10 million views for, for no reason. It, it, it does because when people see what he's accomplished, de-radicalizing over 200 members of the KKK, just by befriending them, that is so powerful and data driven that it is totally undeniable. That is how transformation happens. So I, I just don't know what the alternative, the, the only alternative to that is getting into this situation where the, the the divide is going to increase because we're just going to be censoring this and censoring that and it's just it's not going to work. And so that's our hypothesis and I'm not trying to create this false dichotomy where it's like us versus them. We need the big tech networks to change. They are not going to disappear in the same way that MySpace and, you know, Friendster disappeared. They're too embedded in devices, in culture. I mostly agree with everything that you're saying here. And I certainly agree that civil discourse is the process and the means that we need in order to to get back to, I think, functional government and functional political and cultural collectivity. There's a point that I wanted to tease out of what you just said, which lies in your statement that ideas do spread. And I agree with that. Ideas absolutely spread. And our leaders should have a larger role in determining the terms on which those ideas do spread. But I also think it's about how ideas spread. And you know, you've, you've talked about the significance of the algorithm and the murkiness of Facebook's algorithms the murkiness of some of these algorithms that govern it's precisely how ideas spread. And my point of view is that in addition to civil leadership and civil discourse, which I agree we absolutely do need, I would go back to that algorithm and say that the, the focus on sensationalistic content, the, the murkiness of what content gets raised to the top and is allowed to spread virally or is offered to people is, is incredibly important. All of the things you say are, are 
true about civil discourse, but I fundamentally don't think that we can get back to a point where we can agree on such basic things as facts, which I think are the the substance on which we can build civil discourse or principles of civil discourse, what constitutes, for example, credible evidence uh, until we, we get back to an equitable ecosystem of technological management of information there. Figuring out how to build technology that helps us find scientific consensus is really, really important. And and the way that fact-checking is occurring on big tech is not working. I think that they may even in good faith be trying, but what they're doing is taking a small group of think tanks and essentially manually applying warnings on posts. What we need is, you know, let's even, let's take a specific issue around something like election fraud, obviously incredibly controversial issue. And what we need to build is not a tool that tells you what to think. We need tools to track consensus around both sides of the argument, whether whatever it is. Because the reality is that there is information on both sides, which is causing people to think the way that they think. But I think that the consensus around something like election fraud in the 2020 election shows that, no, there was not election fraud to the degree that it changed the election. That's what the court said. That's what everybody said. That's what the consensus moved to. Were there isolated cases of some ballot? Like, yes, election fraud occurs globally all the time. There are, it's common and and it's, it's, it's totally admitted. And so- We need information around each claim to show the evidence on both sides. And the consensus should really speak for itself. Now, this is not an easy task. Like this is, you know, Wikipedia is is struggling with this. I think that they're, you know, they have a good faith effort in the process, but social media has not come out with anything that has been compelling to me about empowering me as a user to hover over something on a post and be able to determine you know, what I think about it based on all of the evidence that exists. We're actually putting together a, a partnership with this group called Ground.News, who I really recommend you, you check out. And they have basically around all trending headlines, they have developed tech to show you the bias of all the headlines. So they don't write articles, that, but they, sh- they show you the topic and then you can dive in and you can kind of get a bias score based on what all the media is saying about a certain topic. And you have the ability to actually put different media into different areas on the spectrum, but they have sort of a boilerplate based on a handful of different NGOs that have tried to start categorizing media bias. And so these types of tools that give the user more information to decide, I think are, are really the key because we also can't necessarily expect technology to you know, tell us the answer. And, and I worry about wanting that. There's just obvious risk of of error and you know, wh- who, who is deciding. We should be helping people get access to as much information that is vetted and accurate and you know put through the, the meat grinder 
as possible. You know, in certain cases, you know, maybe there's a score that you see on the post, which sort of telling you what to think, but it's not telling you like a hundred percent. I mean, maybe in some cases it could be a hundred percent, you know, is 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 the earth flat? Like, okay, in a situation like that, I think that the score would be overwhelming according to all of the sources that would be in the metadata of the post to basically make it 100%. But just the way that fact-checking is occurring is, is, I think, not giving the users the credit to be able to make a decision based on the breakdown of the information in the research. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, kind of going, going uh, a little bit deep, but I'm curious your thoughts. Well, no, this is an important point here because while disinformation has existed uh, throughout recorded history, it seems like the internet and more specifically social media has exacerbated these issues of spreading disinformation in our contemporary moment. And we've seen, for example, uh, Twitter and Facebook, disinformation is disputed kind of tags. Um, but I don't know that this gets to the issue. And, and Minds uses this this really interesting jury system to judge whether content is fit for the service um, or not. I wonder if you could explain how that works and what in your mind the jury system does in representing an equivalent of an ethical system or a responsible system of governance and over facts. So currently the jury is just for appeals. And it's actually to keep us in check if we make a mistake. So there's a report button on a post. It gets reported. It goes to our moderators. Our moderators make a decision. If the user thinks that it was the wrong decision, then they, for certain cases, not every case, certain cases like where it's clearly illegal, we don't allow an appeal. But for more of the edge case stuff, we, we do allow appeals. And then the appeal goes to a random selection of 12 active users. And they vote in accordance with our terms. That's what they're supposed to do. So that that's sort of an avenue to keep us in check if we make mistakes. Now, ultimately, we're going to move it to not just appeals, but we're going to create like a public feed of content where users can pop in and they can earn tokens for doing this, where they help us categorize content. They help us rate it. Is it explicit? Is it Paris? Is it a photo of whatever? Give it a, a quality score. And we can get into applying citations into this area. And essentially, once a post reaches a certain level of consensus around a specific tag, that tag will actually get applied to the content. Interestingly, Twitter recently launched a new beta feature called Birdwatch, which I was shocked when it came out. I was because I was like, "Have they been listening to me?" But it, it's it's essentially what it, it's very similar. It's sort of like a, a jury on content where they're getting the community involved. But the problem with a jury inside Twitter or Facebook is that. It's existing within a very restrictive policy, which already doesn't align with the First Amendment. So just to be clear, mine goes by the U.S. First Amendment because we're a U.S. company, and we actually do believe that the U.S. model for free speech is the best model for free speech. And with that comes risk of you know potential other countries not allowing us to exist. We've not had many issues with that except for in China and Vietnam, but you know, 
that happens to pretty much every, every big tech company, you know, China doesn't allow. So I guess what I would say is that a jury system within a restrictive speech policy is not that interesting to me because ultimately the policy of the site is the macro tool for engineering healthy dialogue. So like one, one case with Twitter's policy, there was an interesting debate between Jack Dorsey, uh, his head of moderation, I forget her name, uh, and Tim Pool on the Joe Rogan podcast. And Tim brought up one particular policy at, at Twitter where, you know, for instance, there was a phrase called learn to code that people were tweeting. And Twitter started banning people for using this phrase, learn to code. And th- there were probably certain circumstances of users using that phrase, and it was malicious and probably not okay. But the idea, the, the whole campaign of learn-, learn to Code was trying to prove a point that the idea of posting Learn to Code, I mean, what's wrong with that? Like, we, we should all learn to code. We'll probably all be, you know, much more... <laughs> much more productive efficient humans uh, i need to i need to learn to code my 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 coding is is not nearly good enough for 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 what i'm doing but that was just an example of really dangerous policy because there were all of these users on twitter getting banned for posting this phrase that that it was totally benign and even if it was a little bit offensive like a you know sort of dark comedy what do you think banning that is going to do Th- think about the person who who posted that who then you know gets banned probably goes and finds some other forum where they think now and they're totally justified that twitter is just this biased politically driven company and that is the type of action that fuels cultural divide. And now granted, someone posting that tongue in cheek, being rude, that also is sort of divisive. But it's, I, I think, pretty overwhelmingly clear that more division is caused by the network banning that phrase than a few cases of that phrase being used as sort of an insult. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've heard a lot of proposals about how to combat uh, disinformation. One that I thought was compelling, I'd be curious to hear what you think about this, is a policy that takes the point of view that a company is responsible for actions that ensue as a result of allowing users to share or actions that result from an algorithm that amplifies content that then causes destruction. So one proposal was, for example, that a post that allows for disinformation, we'll take a specific case, the COVID vaccine causes autism or something like that, that if there is demonstrable damage caused as a result of a platform allowing this to be shared and amplified, that they would be responsible for commensurate damages as a result of that. Um, And that would, I think, the policy reasoned, be basis for a company to be incentivized toward combating misinformation internally or combating, you know, damaging content internally. What do you think about that? I think that's a dangerous path because first of all, section 230 protects against that very specific thing right now. Basically, if you compare social networks to uh, phone carriers or a website provider, I mean, to, to say that a company is responsible for everything and anyone that uses that product is just a slippery slope that will will never end. That's like saying 
what about all of the horrible people who use Apple computers? I mean, what, why, why stop there? Why not stop someone from having a bank account or a phone or any tool that enables them to cause whatever potential harm they may cause. I don't think it is a good idea. And I think that there are much more productive mechanisms that that we can put into place than putting that liability on the company. Because once you start going down that path, that's when entire political ideologies will get banned because there's too much risk in the company's opinion that those people will cause potential damage to the company. So I, I, I think that I understand the place of probably good intent that that type of a proposal is coming from because they think, oh, yeah, if you, you know, the companies will be more responsible with their content if they're responsible for it and they have liability. That makes sense. And, and from I, I think from a relatively shallow perspective, that makes sense, but it really doesn't if you think about the scary places it could go. Yeah. I mean, I think about liability in terms of proportional liability. A bank is obviously not responsible for um, users who act in violation of the bank's protocols. But if I deposit a check in a bank and the bank does not recognize an obvious fraud, there might be proportional liability. The analogy that comes to mind is with self-driving cars. You know, I have a car right now that allows me to, uh, to make turns, but it will guide me in its algorithmic assumption about the kind of turn. I'm making, but it won't guide me more than I think something like 30%. Why? Because if it guides me more than 30%, it then takes over the responsibility and the liability for a turn. And they want to minimize right, their liability, so it will only allow them to make that turn 30%. I think the analogy would be to the kind of algorithmic governance that a site allows for in terms of amplification. So what if the amplification algorithm or allows for unchecked amplification of a of a tweet, for example, that Twitter should know better about amplifying? What's your take on that? Do you think that there should be absolutely no governance? Is this an absolute position or is it a proportional position? No, I mean, again, I think that if there is content that is clearly illegal, then I definitely think that platform have a responsibility to deal with that content. And so there is like, I think a certain degree of liability is fair. But to say that potential harm caused by like indirect connections between a post and something that happens that the platform could very unlikely have had any control over. I mean, yeah, like if if a platform is amplifying some clear call for violence and doing nothing about it and it goes on to cause violence, I think that, yeah, so again, we're sort of back to where we started with, but th these are just the basic rules. The hazier territory is when you start to talk about posts that are not clear. Right. COVID vaccines cause autism, for example, which would disincentivize potentially a large portion of people from helping for a very important public moment. Yeah. And again, I think that in that scenario, again, you know, similar to like election fraud, uh, vaccines are obviously one of those other 
issues that there's tons of debate over and it's obviously heavily nuanced. I think, you know, the data overwhelmingly shows that vaccines are are great and necessary. And are there cases where certain vaccines have caused harm? Yes, there are. And if you had mechanisms to display that empirical information, it would be totally obvious to anybody looking at the post that the overwhelming research around the COVID vaccine is X or, you know, around whatever vaccine is X. Now, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take time to build up these sort of accurate catalogs showing and visualizing in a clear way the data around each of these topics. But that's more the world that I personally want to live in. Like I'm personally, and and I think that the evidence does show that banning skepticism of any specific topic that isn't you know, illegal. I don't think that it's illegal to be skeptical of of certain vaccines, just as it isn't illegal to be a neo-Nazi. And like, yes, these these are da- this is this is an area of danger, <laughs> and that can be made clear while allowing the content to exist, because we realize as a society that the risk to society is actually greater by not allowing that dangerous idea to exist. And this is the paradigm that we that we need to break through because it's not one way or the other. There are there are dangerous ideas that should exist based on our philosophy. And so th- that's really where we need to focus the conversation. It's not a question of is it dangerous you know, is is a is a lot of uh, anti-vax media potentially dangerous? The answer to that is yes. But when you compare that to the risk of having no skepticism of any vaccines allowed, are you sure that you want to live in that type of dystopia? Because actually, both are both have varying degrees of danger. So we kind of have to decide which one is, from a foundational perspective, more productive. I mean, I tend to be a, a little bit, I think, more of a moderate about thinking about you know how we want to create a common sense trade-offs between those things. I want to ask you a question about an interview you did with Classic Metal Show. There was a kind of question asked to you about freedom of speech on social media, and they placed minds among other social media sites such as Gab and Parler. Do you agree with that placement? Or if not, what do you think Minds is doing that these other sites are, are not doing that ultimately sets minds apart from these other sites that it was grouped with. I would be pretty confident that I pushed back on that because when whenever people try to compare us to those sites, I push back because I have big problems with the way that Gab and Parler are running their companies. I think that they're incredibly divisive. Uh, Parler, for instance, is not open source. It has big privacy implications. It was funded by the Mercers who funded Cambridge Analytica, which was one of Facebook's biggest privacy scandals of the last few years. And it's incredibly polarized from a political perspective. It's clear. I mean, I, I got... I, I did sign up for Parler to just kind of poke around. I and I never spent any time there, but I think I got an email from Parler actually saying stop the steal. That was the title of the email. I mean, that is unbelievable for a 
public square. Yeah, for a public no, that's not a public square. It's a it's a political propaganda mechanism. Now, so yeah, and and same with Gab. I think that Gab is incredibly polarized. I think both of those sites have the right to exist, and I don't necessarily agree with like, you know, Amazon taking Parler down at all. Well, I I actually don't know all the backstory and if they were, you know, what the dialogue was between them and Amazon. But when the cloud providers start attacking these these companies, I do think that we're entering into a little bit of scary territory. But again, both companies, I think, have a right to exist, but are doing it wrong in a very significant way with the tone and the polarization coming out from the companies themselves. And they're not facilitating civil discourse in honest. Well, maybe they're being honest, but they're being polarized. So I don't think that that's really what we need from networks. And I don't, and, and it's clearly not going to scale if you can't, you know, if you're cutting off a whole political ideology. I mean, at, on Minds, we, our initial growth phase was mostly progressives in reaction to a lot of the uh, Snowden revelations and around the NSA spying. Many progressives were in our initial surge of like a quarter million users. And then, you know, during the Trump years, we definitely did get some some more conservative free speech types. Recently, we've been getting like a lot of gamer community and, you know, more centrists, to be honest, people who are just feeling disillusioned by all of it and just want to not even be political so I guess, unfortunately, we get cast into this category of alt tech because we are alternative to the typical practices of big tech. And so, you know, categorically, I guess, yeah, we, we are, but I don't actually consider those companies to be truly alternative. They're sort of a, a reactionary move against big tech when we're trying to not be reactionary. We're trying to to be more neutral and abide by a set of core principles, particularly transparency, which some of these other alternatives don't. So for us, the only true alternatives have to be open source. You know, they have to be facilitating good faith civil dialogue. And, you know, they have to be abiding by the principles that we outline on our homepage. And it's become very trendy for companies to use marketing language around privacy and whatnot, but they don't actually walk the walk and they still have like Google Analytics where they're tracking everybody and they still take all those shortcuts that we were discussing earlier in the conversation. Instagram, Facebook, and many other social media networks have been credited with creating new trends in human behavior. And our theme for this conversation is changing minds and really kind of focusing on that dimension of civil discourse as a mechanism for changing minds. But I'm also curious about the inverse. How do you think that current major social media platforms have changed our minds, so to speak, the realm of human beliefs, values, and understandings of the world. We're just overwhelmed by by the media and the trending news. And unless we're very careful, our, our minds are changed in probably physical ways, you know, and that gets back into the realm of addiction and, and mental health. So, so there's those types of ways that our minds are being changed, probably for the worse, where we're, you know, depend, we can't even sit still and waiting in line for our food without checking our phone because we're so anxious about just dealing with our own thoughts. And that's, that is honestly a very foundational issue that we, we do want to be tackling more so and actually encouraging people to not 
be on our app. And that's why we did the physical event with Daryl, because we are having a whole series of, you know, Minds IRL in real life to bring people together. And we want our app to help bring people together in real life because, you know, the end game is not staring at your phone. So that is really important. And unfortunately in COVID, you know, physical events are just not happening. I mean, we actually had a event plan, another event plan with Daryl in New York City at a major venue, which I wish I could say. And, and hopefully once all this clears up, we'll, we'll be able to do that. But yeah, the, the whole face-to-face issue has, has really blown up in our faces and, you know, it's going to make it harder for society to come together now that we have this physical deterrent from getting together. So we need, we need to double down in our efforts online to, to transcend this. I mean, I think that one of the compelling things about Daryl's project is that it really is face to face. You know, he tells the gripping story of the first time he goes and meets with Roger Kelly. And so much of that story is powerful because it happens in physical space. Do you think that the kinds of techniques of civil discourse that happen in those face-to-face moments are translatable online? Or do you think that online commits us to a situation where we see each other through that hypermediated form of virtuality such that the humanity is an extra jump that we have to make in order to facilitate that connection? I guess the question I'm asking here is, does the principle of civil discourse that seems to, at least in so many philosophical traditions and in Daryl's work specifically, require that kind of face-to-face interaction translate to online discourse in a virtual environment? Yeah, it's a great question. I believe, yes, it can translate, but I also agree that we need both. I know for a fact, even out of personal experience of people I've engaged with, because I I actually do do this work like Daryl on Minds. I, I am regularly reaching out to people who have crazy ideas and trying to engage in conversations with them, get understand why they think the way they think and, you know, and, and have developed friendships where, and, and we have started to gather some very exciting data around some people who are voluntarily, you know, coming forward and saying that they have changed on minds. But I think, yes, it's both, I mean, his focus has traditionally been face to face and that is irreplaceable. And we need to be focusing on that to a certain degree. However, he does constantly engage digitally with people. He's, he has read to me dialogues through email and on social media that he has with certain radical individuals and how, and, and shown that, that, you know, that is part of it. I mean, communication is very fluid these days. And I think that we can all acknowledge that we most people have met close friends online or, you know, met people they really don't like online, but you know, I personally have some great friends that I've met online, uh, some of my best friends. And so, you know, that really shows that that it can happen and it does happen and uh, it, it can be a, a great resource. It's not the end game, but particular, I mean, even uh, virtual therapy is becoming huge 
now. And, and, and we do know that it, it does work. It's, it's probably not as good. We're coming to our end of our time here. And I wanted to circle back to something that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, it sounds like you and I were in college at around the same moment. And our first encounter with Facebook uh, happened in that particular moment. We're coming up to uh, 20 years AF, <laughs> which I call after Facebook. What do you think that we've learned about the ethics that need to be installed and foregrounded in social media enterprises in those 20 years? We have learned that humans and particularly corporations are incredibly stubborn about changing and the addiction rates have skyrocketed on social media and the even despite all of the outrage about the scandalous digital practices at, at big tech you know these companies don't want to change because they have figured out a way to engineer revenue through surveillance and through these algorithms. And, you know, they have obligations to their shareholders that they will, they believe they have these obligations to their shareholders. Ultimately, I would argue that there's going to come a point where the revenue starts dropping because the alternatives who abide by principles and treat the users better are going to start gaining steam. And I think we're starting to see that, but it's probably still going to take place over the next 10 years where I, I would imagine 10 years from now, we'll, let's do another podcast. We're going to be looking at a very different world. I mean, maybe even five, probably less. So, so I think we've learned that we can build alternatives, um, but that it's also very difficult. It's honestly, it's, it's, it's so, so many shades of gray. We, we know that network effects and critical mass shifts of virality can happen overnight. So it is just as possible that a hundred million people will sign up for mines in six, six months and suddenly will be much more in the conversation than we are now. But it's also possible that no network is going to achieve that in the next five years. So it it could happen at any moment. And it really has to do with just resonating with the global consciousness in a way that causes that, that shift to happen. So I think that the good news is we know that it's possible but it's it's not going to be easy and you know i i just i don't know what to say it's just so disappointing to me that these tech executives who are very brilliant they know exactly what is happening but part of the the reason why i sort of almost have compassion for them is that they're getting they can't win it, it's in in a similar way that we can't win because with our free speech policy, we do get attacked. And, you know, majority of the press coverage around us has been has been really great. And even a lot of the mainstream media supports what we're doing because I think they understand we have a, a good faith program going on to tackle this issue. But Facebook gets attacked every day for not censoring enough and for somewhat morally justifiable reasons. And so whichever path they go, they're going to get attacked. And so, and, and that, that's the case with us too. So you sort of have to accept to a degree that you will be attacked. You know, th there's going to be people who don't just simply don't agree that racists deserve a voice and convincing them to agree with you is going to be just as hard as convincing a KKK member to leave that it's, it's, it's deeply embedded in their brains and it's, 
It's not going to be easy. But big techs are not, in my opinion, objectively looking at the data and understanding that the censorship direction doesn't work. I, I've never seen them talk with Daryl. I don't know why they're not. I don't know why we don't see any you know, major announcements from them about proactively talking to radical individuals with compassion. Why, why can't we see that? Why can't they A-B test that and see if it works and, and maybe start to actually drive some, some positive change as opposed to just sweeping the problem under the rug? The last question brought me back to where I was using Facebook, the first kind of original iteration of it in college. And I like to end episodes by asking my guest a question that is future oriented, especially since I teach college students who are maybe on Facebook, maybe they've moved on to a, another social media platform. I understand that Facebook is now the dinosaur of the last generation, such as I. But since a lot of our listeners represent the next generation of tech, I guess I would close the conversation by asking you, what do you want them to know or understand or be aware of when they engage online? And what do you hope that minds will become as the next generation, which I think is part of your, your vision here of social media platforms? Well, the funny thing about the younger generation is that most of them are on Instagram, not even realizing that Facebook owns Instagram and that Instagram is actually the secret weapon of Facebook that you know somehow people don't realize that and facebook even knows that their brand is destroyed and the instagram is the only thing keeping them alive so that's one thing to <laughs> that's one thing i would say instagram is facebook <laughs> it is the same app it is the same data it is all the same and granted, it's designed beautifully. I mean, I, I think that big tech has has done wonders in terms of user experience and design. I think that you know that's the credit that I will give them. And I just wish that they would open source it. So that's point A. And you know, for people to to remember moving forward, I think that purpose, ha having a, a true sense of purpose with what you are doing online and on on your apps is just really crucial like right now the focus is on you know how can i get more likes how can i you know signal my amazing life and show like the best depiction of myself and that is a little bit black mirror ish to to me and i think that we need to realize that humanity has a dark side an ugly side humanity is you know has serious issues <laughs> and i think it's healthy to want to dive into that a little bit and be willing to to be okay with a little bit of the ugliness existing because a lot of people who post on mine say, oh my gosh, I feel like I can actually be myself here. They think that they, they feel like they can actually speak their minds. Where on Instagram, they feel suppressed. They, they, they feel like they have to depict this almost fake version of their lives. Self-censorship. And so I authenticity, pursuing authenticity, and you know, being willing to grapple with these difficult issues from like a highly nuanced perspective. And really like we all get triggered by certain things, but I think we need to train ourselves 
to understand more so like what really matters. And this, this gets into the idea of like potentially finding somebody who is totally different from you and like searching for that humanity on the other side of the keyboard. And it's, it's, it's not going to be easy. So again, it's a, it's a long-term process. I think that people should just be open to change and diversify their experience. Don't feel like you, you know, can only be on Instagram and TikTok. You know, there's, there's other places to explore, which are potentially going to bring out more interesting sides of you. Thank you, Bill. And I will see you and Daryl on change.minds.com. Please go check out the minds.com platform. I think it's an exciting new alternative to uh, the social media as it is in its current iteration, problematic iteration. And Bill, thank you again for the wonderful conversation. I will see you again in five years. Thanks for having me. Uh, Find me minds.com slash Ottman. Feel free to reach out. I would love love to talk to you.